Uh, if you can stand for the reading of the word, we're going to read our passage for this morning. Two passages. I think they'll be on the screens. The projectors go out. There we go. Psalm 2. The whole psalm here. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For the wrath, his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And then in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 16. Starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. You can be seated. We are continuing our series through the Apostles' Creed. We're walking through this creed that we recite every week, line by line, sometimes a couple words at a time. And why are we doing this? Why are we doing, spending, really it's three months walking through this creed. When we think of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, often we can think of just a cold list of doctrine or a statement of faith. But in actuality, this creed that we recite every week is centered on a person. It's centered on a name. It is doctrine, but it's more than that. This creed is a unifying statement of beliefs that the Christian church has held to for much of its existence. And as we continue throughout the next few months to look at the Apostles' Creed, we should remember what a creed is intended to be. The Apostles' Creed is to be a set of beliefs, this is the dictionary definition, a set of beliefs 
or aims which guide someone's actions. The Apostles' Creed is a set of agreed-upon beliefs that guide the actions of the church. These are a unifying thing that we say we believe together and therefore this determines how we should live. The creed, as we read every Sunday, is roughly broken up into three sections representing each member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. By far, the lengthiest section of the Apostles' Creed is what we're starting today. The next several weeks, we're going to be focusing specifically on the core beliefs and the core narrative of the story of the person of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus... is Jesus is the most written about, the most artistically portrayed person in history. Time Magazine has regularly said that he is the most influential person in history. Not that Time Magazine is definitive, but that's, they, they put out a list of like the most influential people in history and he is always number one. Jesus is as popular, controversial, and misunderstood today than he has ever been. It is imperative, it's important that as a Christian church that has its name centered in Jesus, we're disciples of Jesus, that we find and contend for a faithful and biblical understanding of the person and work of Jesus, Christology. And if we're honest, it's way too easy to hijack Jesus for whatever, as the poster child for whatever cause you want him to be. Depending on your flavor, depending on where you find yourself, he could be the middle class moralist, he could be your therapist, an enlightened guru, he could be a hellfire preacher that preaches the coming um, judgment of God. He could be a social justice warrior. The list grows and continues and is is ever growing of the different things Jesus is the poster child for. Jesus keeps getting a rebrand over and over. The reason that he simply refuses to go away is that he is, without question, the most influential person throughout history. I found this poem written in 1926, James Allen Francis, and I wanted to read it. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in an obscure village, in another obscure village, where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 when Uh, when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book, never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. None, uh, he did none of these things, usually associated with greatness. 
He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, and while dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing. The only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that, ever been, that have ever been sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on the earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. This one solitary life. He is without question the most influential person throughout history. But who is he? What is he? That is to that end, the Apostles' Creed gives us our statement this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. This morning, we're going to look at those three identities and see how they're laid out in Scripture. These are not just titles that we've come up with after the fact to like describe who Jesus is. The Scriptures clearly lay out these identities and titles for who Jesus is. Let's look at this story in Matthew chapter 16. We read this a few minutes ago. What's happening here in this story? Jesus and his disciples are in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is a really important location um, in his day. Caesarea Philippi was, in many ways, a capital city or a crown city of the a crown jewel of the Roman Empire in that region. It was named as a dedication to both Caesar and to Herod Philip. There was a white marble temple that was dedicated to Caesar Augustus. There was a long-standing temple to the god Pan and another temple to Baal also. This city was a political and theological uh, cultic capital. It was a very significant location. And it is here that Jesus asks his disciples the question. First, he asks them, what are other people saying? Who are other people? What are other people saying about him? What's the word on the street? What are people saying? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. An odd thing about all of those people at this point is they are all dead. John the Baptist was recently uh, executed. Elijah and Jeremiah have been gone for a long time. 
There hasn't been a prophet on the scene for hundreds of years, in reality. The people have no idea what to make of Jesus. They are clueless as to who this man is. He's clearly from God. They'll acknowledge that. Maybe he's like a reincarnated, resurrected prophet or something. They have no idea of what his real role is. So then Jesus asks his disciples the question. And this is the question that ultimately I believe we all need to answer. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a prophet? That's how Islam deals with him. Is he a good teacher? Lots of people say that about him. Is he a moral example? That's a popular opinion. So I was thinking about this, I remembered C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity famously said, I'll read this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, and you can spit on him as, and kill him as the demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Thank you, C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I think Lewis here, he, he puts his finger on the issue that's at hand in this passage for us. Peter says, Peter replies to the question, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms this. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's confession here that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is crucial. These, those definite articles, I, I, I emphasize those, the, the word the is really important. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Christ, first off, just to clear the record, is not Jesus' last name. Except sort of in the, in the like old sense, the old way that surnames were used, like Taylor or Fisher or Clark, 
Packer, those sort of names, where it was a surname to declare someone's trade (laughs) or profession. In that sense, I mean, it, it works. But it is not his last name. Jesus was his given name, and that is the name that places him really in history. Jesus was the name given to a man who lived in Nazareth, who lived in a carpenter, as a carpenter's son in a carpenter's family. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was his name that places him really in history. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua. It literally means God is Savior. But Christ is a title. It's not a, not a name per se. Christ is the Greek version of a Hebrew word, Messiah. Literally means the anointed one. The Messiah was the long-expected king who would make everything right again. The Messiah, the Christ, was expected to set up and establish God's rule and reign on the earth again and to establish his dominion over every other ruler and power. To call Jesus the Christ was to claim For him, a decisive place in history and a universal dominion that all men everywhere must acknowledge. To call Jesus the Messiah was a political claim. It was very, especially in the context of Caesarea Philippi, this was a key claim. If Jesus is the Christ and therefore the ruler of heaven and earth, then Caesar is not. And Peter adds, Jesus is not just the Christ. He is also the son of the living God. Lots of people throughout the Old Testament are called sons of God. But Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten, the beloved. He is unique and preexistent in his nature. He's the second member of the Godhead. We read this passage last week, and I, I wanted to read it again this week because I think it's key here. Colossians chapter 1. I think it'll be on the screens. Yeah. This is about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. And he is the head of the body of the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus was not and is not simply an anointed king or a political rebel, a man in history. He is God incarnate. He is God who took on flesh. He is before all things and he upholds all things by the power of his word. Another passage that we should read that just brings all this home, the beginning of the Gospel of John, John is trying to put words around describing who Jesus is. And he does so in this poetic language here. John chapter 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the word. That word is Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him, that's Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness of the light. The true light, which is given light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. That You could spend a lifetime thinking about that. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. This should be staggering. These passages that we've just read, the point of them is they should cause you to worship. Great is the mystery of godliness. This, is this, this should cause us to fall on our knees and worship. When we think about the reality of who Jesus is, this God-man, this God in flesh, you should worship. Jesus is the king. He's the son of God. He's the anointed Messiah, the king of kings. But as the creed says, he is our Lord. We read Psalm 2 this morning, and it was a favorite psalm for the early church. It was key to understanding and defining what they meant by Messiah. I want to read parts of this again. I'll I'll jump around a little bit. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves up. The rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords. I love this. He who sits in the heaven laughs. God is unmoved. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. The Messiah will reign. He will rule and reign as king. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son and today I have begotten you, Jesus, the only begotten son. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He will be Lord of all. This is who Jesus is. He is the Lord of all, the King of the universe, the King of kings. And yet he is also uniquely our Lord, my Lord, your Lord. Quick search of the New Testament. Take Logos and you put in the words Jesus and Lord. Over 300, 345 times in the ESV, Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament. This was the main title used for Jesus. This was the main way he was described for the early church. And this is where, I think, as we talked about with the creed, our beliefs must influence and lead to action. It's not enough just to believe that he's Lord as like a cognitive, I think he's Lord. But there has to, there's implied response and action to that. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, you are saying that everything else is subservient to him. You are confessing that your life is fully surrendered to his lordship. To call Jesus Lord is to submit everything to him. We are really comfortable with Jesus as savior as our friend, as our comforter. And he, he is those things. I'm not denying any of those. But he is also Lord. He is the ruler, the master of our lives. He deserves full control. To withhold anything from him, it would be to stand against his lordship. But we do this too often. We often, we try to domesticate Jesus. We try to make him fit in with our lifestyle, with our plans, with our agenda. We want him to be conformed into our image, to make us feel comfortable about our lifestyle. But we must conform to his image. We must surrender everything to him. This is the very point of discipleship. This is what this is all about, guys, is that we are continually learning to bring everything into submission to the lordship of Jesus. 
I'm not saying we have any of this figured out or all of this figured out or any of us are perfect. But we are all on this journey of continually learning to submit everything to the lordship and leadership of Jesus. We learn every day to bring the everyday stuff of life, work, parenting, eating, everything, unto the submission and the direction of Jesus as a constant act of worship, a lived out act of worship and surrender. As disciples, we are learning to be like him. So this week, I'm gonna wrap up here, but this week, as we say every week, now is the time to apply this. We talk about this every week. We, we, uh, we put out the passages ahead of time hoping that you would, would read them and study them and then come here and hear the word of God preached together. And now is the time to apply this and then live it out, live out the implications. Jesus is not to be your God on the side. He will not share you. He's a jealous God and he wants all of you. He deserves to be your Lord. He is worthy of all of your surrender, of your full devotion. The question this week is, what does it look like for you right now? What are the things that you're holding on to? What are the areas of your life that you have under lock and key that you are unwilling to surrender to the lordship and leadership of Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? How has that worked out now and in your life? What does total surrender to the Lordship of Jesus look like? And where do you start? Think about that this week. Discuss that with somebody. Have a cup of coffee and have that conversation. Invite somebody into that process because surrendering on your own you're, you're more likely to not surrender. But the point of community, bring somebody into that. I'm going to pray the worship team to come back up. Jesus, forever I just want to make much of your name. God, I pray that we would be a community of disciples who live and breathe to make much of who Jesus is, to exalt him in the everyday stuff of life, that we would live out the implications of this confessed lordship, that we would surrender everything to your will and your way. Jesus, help us, give us strength and courage Jesus, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for who you are and all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.